Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? I'm really thankful, uh, again, as Peter said, like the ability to gather, ability to be in a space like this is a huge gift. Uh, ability for you to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you showed up, that you're part of what we're doing. Uh, it's an honor for me to be able to call Center home. Hopefully it is for you too, if this is your home. If you're checking things out again, Peter said, um, there's ways to get connected. We wanna bless you and answer questions maybe that you have as you leave uh, today, whenever that ends up being. But one thing I want to say real quick, uh, we were singing that song and I knew we were gonna sing that song, but that song just has a way of hitting me in different seasons. I remember when I first heard that song, uh, I, our family was going through kind of a tough time and that line, like, you're not finished with me, you're not finished with me, you make all things work together, it just hit me in a different way. And, and now a couple years later, we're singing that song again and uh, just thinking about some of what uh, people like you are going through, some of the challenges maybe you're facing, could be financial, could be someone you've lost, could be a, a tough uh, parenting moment you're in, tough marriage moment that you're in. I don't know like all the specifics of every Buddy's story or whoever's watching online, your story. But here's what I know, like that song is just as true in good seasons as it is true in seasons that are really hard. And, and the most important thing you may have done today is not what I'm about to say, it's not what you're gonna drink or who you're gonna hang out with here, but it may be what we just sung, that, that God, you have a way, in, in a way no one else can do, of taking things that look awful and evil and hard and depressing and worry-filled and, and future disorienting, and you have a way of turning them for good. And that's something only God can do. Only in his presence can that kind of thing happen. And so I just wanted to say that because to me, I look over the stories, I look at my own life. I, I'm just so aware right now, uh, January, 2022, that our world is still hurting. And there's just not, like and when I look around our world, you just tell us not the way it was supposed to be that we are so far from, from how, uh, we just talked all of January basically, but how we were created, how God has intended us to flourish and to thrive and be in good relationship with one another. We're just far from that. And COVID is obviously part of that, but so many other things are attached to that. So I just wanted to say uh, what we just sung is still true. It's true for you. It's true for your family. It's true for your extended family. It's true for us as a church. It's true for me today as a pastor. Like I needed to, to sing those words today and, and maybe you did too. Um, I'm just aware of that. And so uh, all, all that to say, if there's ways we can support you, if there's ways we can be praying for you, please in this season, let us know. Like we can't know what we don't know. And so if there's stuff going on that's heavy, and some of you have done that, you've reached out these last few weeks, just said, hey, this is really difficult. Uh, I need answers, I need help, I need prayer. Uh, so thank you for taking that step. And maybe some of you, that's the best thing you can do before you leave is just to, to invite someone else into the journey with you. Um, we love, that'd be an honor for us to do it. And so uh, we're gonna jump into God's word here. Um, but I just wanna say that like our world, yeah, I'm just aware of it as we start this new kind of movement in the series towards the fall, what went wrong. I'm aware as you are, there's a lot of things that are not necessarily right in the world that we're facing. And so I was trying to think about this, like how do you, how do you talk about this? Because it, if all of us are like aware that our world is not the way it's supposed to be, why is that? And that's what we're gonna get into. We're gonna talk about what went wrong when it comes to the, the narrative of humanity, when it comes to the scripture story. A lot of you know that I spent a year following high school graduation in Auckland, New Zealand, which is really, really far away. It's like 15, 16 hours of flying away from where I was living at the time, which is Grand Rapids. 
I flew over there, and one of the biggest challenges I knew I was going to face was driving. Anyone ever driven where it's like opposite side of the road? Anybody ever been to Europe? Okay, a few of us. So it's like one of the most terrifying things you can think of because I had to go to the, the, the I don't even know what if it's still there now, but somewhere in Grand Rapids to get my international driver's license. So I got my international license uh, and, and headed over there. I was super excited, but I was like, if I'm going to live here for a year, I can't just fully rely on public transit. I've got to drive. So I get a car and I hop in the car. And the first thing that was confusing is like everything is, as you'd imagine, on the other side of the car, right? So I hop into the right side of the car. I'm looking at highways just like this one. It's like, uh, that's not how I saw it in Grand Rapids. Like that does not look like 131 for an obvious reason. Like the traffic is flowing the opposite direction of how I grew up for the first 18 years of my life. And so I get there, I've got my license, I've got my car, I hop in and I start down the road. And you can imagine maybe what I did. I start going the wrong way. Like I'm going the opposite direction and the house I lived on was on a hill. So it's terrifying. So I swerve, I make a U-turn, I start going the other way. I was like, okay, I, I think I got this. It only took me a year to figure out how to actually drive a New Zealand well. I narrowly avoided like 17 different accidents while I was there, but I never hit anybody and no one hit me that I know of. And so that was great. The year was awesome. It was a great year. New Zealand's an awesome place. The challenge was coming back home. So I get back home. We lived in kind of rural Caledonia at the time. So we're living there. And uh, the first day I'm back, I'm like, Mom, I need to run to the store, pick up a few things, like some th stuff I left in New Zealand at the time. So I hop in the van and I start down our driveway and then I have to turn left. Okay, I have to turn across the, the first lane and into the next lane to go left where I need to go. And so I'm doing this and it's Caledonia, okay? If anyone has lived in Caledonia or you live in like rural Byron Center, you're like, you're not really worried about traffic ever. And I never thought about it once. So I get in the car and I pull out, I turn left and what did I do? Any guesses? I was in the left lane going left, which is the opposite of how you're supposed to. And so I'm going in the left lane, I'm driving and I've got the radio on, I am like locked in. I'm like, man, I'm so glad to be back in the land of McDonald's and Chick-fil-A, okay? So I'm back home, it's good. And I'm going down the road and I see this enormous Ford, like 250 black, just humming along towards me. And I'm like, this guy must be drunk. <laughs> it's like, like that dude's drunk. It's like 2 p.m. and he's in the wrong lane. What is this guy's issue? And I'm, I'm seeing, I'm like, he's gonna figure it out. And eventually I realize what you all already realize. It's like, no, you're in the wrong lane. So I swerve over my 2003 Honda Odyssey and we made it. Like I was alive and I've lived to tell the tale. Like I'm still here. I've not done that again. But what shocked me about that is how easy it was, like even just a year in to get used to the way things were there. Like to get used to things being opposite. Uh, someone joked to me, they're like, do you know when the toilets flush, they go the opposite direction? which was actually a myth, but I was convinced it was real. Like I got there, I flushed, I was like, whoa, it doesn't work that way. But with the car thing, it was like, man, that took months for me to get fully adjusted. Like they had roundabouts and that was a new thing for me. I, I again, in Caledonia, it was like a couple stoplights at the time. And so I would just go through roundabouts like four times, trying, trying to find my exit, just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And so it took me a lot of time to get used to it, but I was shocked when I came back how long it, like how quickly I had learned the other way of doing things. And to me, when you look at kind of the fall of humanity, when you think about like these huge ideas of sin and brokenness in our world, 
it's shocking how quickly we get used to things being the wrong way. Like it's shocking how normal broken can feel in your family. That's, that's true in your workplace. That's true in our church. That's true in any community setting you've ever been in, school. It's like, it just is shocking how natural sin and things being backwards can be. It's shocking how natural, maybe if you're a boss or you employ people, how natural it is to think of yourself first instead of your employees. It's shocking how if you're married, how natural it is from day one to think about yourself instead of your spouse. It's shocking if you have kids, like I have started on the beautiful and terrible journey of, that, that it's shocking how you wanna put your needs before their needs. It doesn't matter how old they are, you can get used to things being broken and disordered, but let me remind you from all of the last couple Sundays, that's not the way we were created. We were created for something better and something more beautiful and flourishing and life-giving than that. And I wanna take you to the story or kind of the origin story of where some of this went wrong, where some of this started to get backwards, where some of this began to be disordered. And so it won't be on the screen, but I want you to turn to Genesis 3. If you've got a physical Bible like I do, you can turn there. It's right at the very beginning. If you wanna look it up, that's totally fine. Uh, if you're a table of contents person, you can do that. You'll find Genesis really early. Um, but in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, here's what we read about this. And this is on the heels, remember, of Adam and Eve being created in communion and in, in loving relationship with their creator. In verse 1, this is what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, this is Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. This is a response. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We're gonna keep reading, but I just wanna take a quick pause there. There's something interesting happened, right? In, in this beautiful, perfect garden, this serpent who I, I've not talked to snakes recently or ever, <laughs> but, but it's talking to them. It's like this really interesting interaction it, it, that's happening. It's going between this woman and this serpent who is crafty, the scripture says, or wise or shrewd. Crafty is actually a really positive term in the rest of the scriptures. It's, it means someone who really gets life, who's very wise, very cunning, very smart. So that's what's happening. The serpent knows maybe what God has said and begins to begun, has begun to twist it in this conversation with Eve. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, for understanding life, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now you can read how the rest of the story goes, but eventually this curse, this brokenness, this backwards way of living is introduced into this beautiful, perfect garden that God had created for him and for his people to live together. When you ask what went wrong, if you 
believe in scripture or you believe uh, that, that God is true and that his way is true, this is kind of our origin story for this. Now, it's interesting because you kind of track through it. Maybe you grew up in an environment where it's like, that's Satan was a serpent. And then you see kind of this interaction in other places of scripture, like snakes and serpent, they're kind of tied to Satan. The text doesn't really say that here. That's not necessarily what's happening, but this is meant to indicate how sin and brokenness was introduced into God's perfect creation. Because at the core of this story, no matter what you believe about creation or young earth or old earth, or was a serpent Satan, was a serpent real, was a serpent a metaphor, whatever you believe, at the core, this serpent in the conversation presents Adam and Eve with a lie. He presents uh, almost a deception is what Eve will say later. She tells God, he deceived us, he tricked us. He presents a lie, and here's the lie. It's actually a quote that I want to use to illustrate this lie, but this is from Ignatius of Loyola. He's a church father. He says, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. This at the core is the lie that Eve and Adam begin to believe, that at the core, God doesn't want what's best for me. At the core, by running my own life, by exercising independence in this garden, I'm going to forge a better way. And honestly, if we sat and, and kind of inventoried all of our lives together, if every one of us came up on the mic and said, okay, here's all the ways I've sinned ever in my life, not only would you find another church next Sunday, you'd hate that, I would hate that, but what would happen is you would quickly find out that at the, at the very base of every single sinful behavior, pattern, addiction, broken relationship you have is that truth. That sin at the the very fundamental level is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. See, Adam and Eve's decision that they make, the, the agency they exercise is really about their own independence. It's, it's a refusal of God's best for them. And, and at the core, that's what sin ends up being. You look through the whole scripture story, and we will, we're going to track through some of this, but they begin in this conversation with the serpent to redefine good and evil in their wisdom instead of God's. Did you catch that? When Eve says, not only is it pleasing to my eye, I know it's going to be good, but it's also desirable, this is verse 6, for gaining wisdom. Do you need wisdom in a setting where God has given you everything you need? Do you need something that he has when he's given you everything you could ever desire? There's something that Eve starts to believe in her humanity that may not necessarily be true of God in the moment. Can I ask a question all of us are maybe thinking? Why does Adam and Eve's independent decision to eat some fruit in a garden that we've never been to, we'll never go to, why does that affect us? Why does it have rippling effects in our life? And I don't have a great answer for that. I don't, uh, to me, that's a mystery. It's one of the best questions you can ask God someday. But one of the things that I think is worth exploring is what Eve and Adam introduce into the world is a warped way of living and thinking that really does for every single one of us begin to feel natural to us. That feels like, like selfish feels more normal than thinking of others, that sin feels more normal than living holy, than, than, than kind of focusing on ourselves feels way more normal than bending our lives in the, peop- in the direction of people around us. They birth this warped way of living and thinking that ultimately says, I know what it means to be fully human. I know what it means to be fully alive. 
and it's my way, not God's way. Here's the sobering thing about this story. If you flip over to the next page, I encourage you to do that if you got a physical Bible, to, to uh, chapter four, R- literally the next couple pages after this story takes place, as sin is introduced into the world, Genesis four, they have kids. And here's what I think. You would think that Adam and Eve would have a chance to kind of reverse the curse, right? It's like, okay, we have kids. They're not gonna know. They're gonna be able to start out this new path. And maybe you thought that. You're like, man, I really had a jacked up childhood. If I can have some kids, I can do it better than my parents. I'm gonna set them on a new path. And maybe that's what they were thinking, but Adam and Eve conceived two boys, Cain and Abel. In verse three, we read that in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. Cain was depressed. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This is the Hebrew idea, kata. It's the very first introduction to the idea, the concept, the word sin in the scriptures. It's not in Genesis 3, it's in Genesis 4, where this moment happens, where they have kind of this inward bent that Cain, for whatever reason, I don't know all the details, but Cain's offering gets rejected. And instead of him believing that maybe that was a good thing for him, for whatever reason, Cain begins to be inward focused. And says, the way I get over this downcast, this depression, this anger is by removing Abel from the planet. And so that's what he does. The rest of the story, you can go and read this. He takes him out to a field and he attacks him and murders him in broad daylight. This obviously is not only the first murder, but this is the first episode of human sin on display, of human internal backwards thinking on display. And ultimately, you can go through the scripture story. Like when we sin, when we do something we know is against God's best for us, what we do is create a, a gap in our relationship with God and other people. That's what happens with Cain and Abel. It's not just a, a divine or vertical problem anymore. It becomes a horizontal problem, and that's all sin ends up doing. I was thinking about this and trying to figure out how do I, how do I make this a little bit more practical for me? Because sin can feel like such a big weird thing to talk about. We don't, uh, we're not in the Catholic church where there's like a daily confession booth you go to. Like we have a lot of differences when it comes to this conversation. But I was thinking about this the other day. So Lennon, our eight month old daughter is currently obsessed with doing two things, chewing on everything and climbing everything. So that's, that's the stage I'm in right now where our, our coffee table, if you looked under it, has little teeth marks everywhere because she just finds a way to go and gnaw on it. She's like a beaver essentially. So this little beaver I have named Lennon is, is going around her house. And so she's climbing things, she's doing things, but she started to do this thing that if you have kids, you, you probably remember the first time where they started to defy what you wanted them to do. Now, Lennon is not a year old. This, this beaver cannot walk. <laughs> she really can't do much of anything on her own at this point. She's very dependent on Lindsay and I at the moment. But what's shocking is she, if she is done eating, 
is done eating. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the cute little spoon, like chugga, 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 choo, choo. And she'll grab it and boom, like, no, I don't want this. Or, or, uh, you want to put her down for a nap and she's decided she's not tired enough for a nap. It's like, nope. So it's crawling up. The, it's like, she started scratching through our wall to the other wall where she knows we're sitting watching TV and trying to have like an hour of silence. Like she knows all that stuff and she's eight months old. So there's things that we have to do out of her best interest that she doesn't necessarily like or want us to do, right? If you have any kids or any, I mean, any relationship in the world has this. Sin is kind of like Lennon saying to me as she's chewing on her coffee table, I'm trying to yank her away from the coffee table. It would be like Lennon saying to me, Daddy, I know what's best. Okay, I know it's best. I really need to chew on my, uh, I need to chew on the coffee table a little bit longer. No, I don't need to go for a nap. No, I don't need to do any of that. But let me ask you the question. Like for her, what happens is like, that's funny and cute. She's eight months old. John compared his daughter to a beaver on stage. Like all those things are funny. But you would think as you mature, as you get older, as you get more free, that life and, and all the situations around us should get better, right? With that same logic. But let me ask you the, the burning question you see it on the screen. Has our world gotten better when given the chance to run our own lives? Has our world gotten, have our leaders gotten better when given the chance to run our own lives? H have you as a spouse even gotten better when given the chance to run your own life? Have, has any church, when, when they really wanted to grow, said, God, we're gonna take our agenda instead of yours. Has that church gotten better when given the chance to run its own life? I mean, the obvious answer for all of us, some of you are already shaking your heads, is no. Our world has not necessarily gotten better when given the chance to be free to run our own lives. Man, this is what is sobering. I was just talking to someone before we started today who's reading through the Old Testament, and you find story after story, generation after generation, of this sin cycle that gets repeated over and over and over again. You think like more knowledge, more time, more resources that God's people would have gotten better at running their own lives. And it actually is the opposite. I wanna rapid fire through a story uh, of, of Abraham, which for the Israelite Jewish people would have been the top patriarch, the top father of their faith. But look at some of the things that he starts, some sin that he lets go in his life and how that trickles down. We're gonna start out with just, there's four slides here. I'm just gonna walk through them really, really quick. So the first one is Abraham begins to lie in his life. You can literally trace this through the Old Testament. Abraham lied twice about his wife, Sarah, and then his offspring, Isaac and Rebekah's marriage ends up being marred with lies. Jacob, his, the next kin down, lies to almost everyone in the story. His name literally means deceiver. Then 10 of Jacob's children lie about Joseph's death, faked a funeral and kept the truth hidden for over a decade. That's just one example of ways that Abraham let sin go in his life. Let this, this lack of dependence on God go. Let's go to the second one. The next one is in his family tree, there's just multiple estranged family members. So his offspring, Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another. Jacob fled his brother Esau and they were completely cut off from each other for years. Joseph was cut off from his 10 brothers for over a decade. So, so Abraham lets this stuff go. The others in his family, let this, let's go to the next one. Favoritism which right now I have a favorite daughter, but if we have another one, that can be a problem, right? If you have multiple kids, you should not go around saying, this is my favorite, maybe do that, shame on you. Favoritism, the third area that you see this in Abraham's life, and this is all from a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's, it's a guy who traces some of this stuff. 
And in this book, he talks about the favoritism. Abraham ends up favoring Ishmael, his, one of his offspring. Then Isaac begins to favor his son Esau. Then the next level, Jacob favors Joseph and later his own son, Benjamin. It's like this, this sin pattern, these generational cycles continue and continue and continue. Let's go to the last one here. In, in their story, multiple times, there's just examples of really bad marriages, spouses that are not sacrificing and loving for one another. Abraham has this child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac has a terrible relationship with his wife, Rebecca. Jacob ends up having two wives and two concubines who he can sleep with at any point. Uh, recipe for a bad marriage, uh, in case you've not already clued into that. Like, there are just broken things after broken things and story after story after story. Now you can read again through the Old Testament, even the New Testament, and find examples of people taking lives into their own hands and it getting worse and the sin just perpetuating itself. Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, man, that, that's bad for them. Like Adam and Eve, what, what losers, man. If I was in the garden, I would never, never think about doing that. And honestly, probably 12, 13 years ago, I'm sitting where you're sitting, I would agree with you. Because I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that stuff either. I don't have any big sin in my life. I don't have any big secrets. I haven't blown up my life. I don't have a cocaine addiction or hit someone while I was drunk driving. I, I don't have any of that. But here's what happened. There was a moment for me. I can remember this moment. It was actually in New Zealand. This year where I, had, I was away, I was uncomfortable. I was in a new place. People didn't know me. People didn't know my name. People didn't know anything about me. And I had this encounter. It was really through reading scripture where I realized through some of the stories we just kind of rehashed that I was living in sin. I was living with this undercurrent of mistrust in God. I didn't believe that he wanted what was best for me. I didn't believe that all he longed for was my deepest happiness. And it started to break me. I started to look at my life and realize, wow, I've lied to this person. I've got pride here. I'm struggling with thoughts here. And just over and over again, it was like it was being revealed how much I needed saving. I would wake up every morning believing that I was best at running my own life. And God started to just peel back in, in a loving way that only a heavenly father can do. Like, basically, do, do you want to keep living this way? Do you want to keep engaging these patterns and these backwards ways of thinking and the sinful behavior that you're living into. Like, honestly, I looked at the story of Adam and Eve, and I was like, I bought that lie. The serpent's lie. I was, I was all in on that. And I came to this place where I realized I am a sinner. I need saving. I'm not self-sufficient. I am awful at being my own king and running my own life. And I just had to come to a place where I surrendered that. And what I love is as you read through the scripture story, and we won't, can't even touch all of this today, but what ends up happening is Jesus reverses the curse of Adam, becomes what scripture describes as the second Adam, this firstborn of, of a new creation that you and I get to engage in. And so no longer does sin become something that brings a curse and ends up being fatal to all of us. What it ends up being is, is an opportunity for God to do his best work. It becomes an opportunity for as we confess, as we name things, as we get things into the light to be healed and restored and back to the way we were always designed to be. It's something that's totally different than how I grew up always thinking about it. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, I'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, I just want you to write this verse down or flag it in your phone. 
Uh, this one has really hit me, especially thinking about this sermon, is 1 John 1. And in 1 John 1, verse 8, here's what the writer says. 1 John 1, 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Did you catch that? He's, he's not letting anybody off the hook here. If we just claim that we don't need saving, we can be independent, we are self-sufficient, we can create ourselves over and over again into our own image instead of God's image, we are deceived. We are buying into the serpent's lie and the truth's not in us. But here's the hope. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God, him, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, if you just stopped at the beginning, it would be incredibly depressing. That's like the worst verse ever. <laughs> like, so you're telling me I'm deceiving myself. Thanks a lot. I have sin. I'm going to die. Thank you very much. But that's not where the story ends. That's not where the gospel ends. The gospel keeps going and says that doesn't have to be the way it's always going to be. Because of Jesus, because of the cross, because of sacrifice, you and I can be restored into that image. That, that, that's, that's in there. That's there. But if we just keep these cycles over and over and over again, all we invite is more dark, more chaos, more sin into our world. I want to ask you two really, really simple questions, and then we'll be done. The first is, what do I run to instead of God in moments, or maybe for you, seasons of stress. What do I run to instead of God? If you want to find out where, where are some of those kind of ruts that you fall into, where are the grooves in your life that's like when things are hard, when things are difficult, when things are high pressure, high stress, when you feel out of control, where do you run to? It's in those places you can identify that's where sin is. That, that's where I, I have a proclivity, I have a bent towards some of these backwards ways of thinking and living. And for you, that may be IPAs, that may be pornography, that may be yelling at your children or getting outraged at your spouse. It may, like there's so many different things. All of us have different kind of bends, but, but the question to ask is what am I running to? What do I run to instead of God in those moments of pressure? And the second question is one that very few of us practice, but if we did, it would free us, is where can I confess? Where can I just get things out? Sin grows in the dark. Sin grows in isolation. And there's something powerful about getting it out of your head, getting it out of your bones and, and confessing and sharing with someone else. Yes, it makes you vulnerable. Yes, it takes courage. Yes, it may not make you more popular and more respected, but what it will do is free you. It'll free you. Where can I confess? Honestly, I would be out of ministry probably if I did not have someone who I regularly was sharing, here's where I'm struggling. I need to be honest about this. I need to bring this into the light. I need to be healed. And for me, that's, that's looked like a conversation. Every Thursday afternoon, it's on my calendar with one of my best friends, Jason, who lives thousands of miles away, but for 30 minutes every single week, we FaceTime and I'm just able to be completely honest completely open and, and completely free to share and, and for him to be able to pray for me, for him to be able to say, John, that doesn't, that doesn't mark you, it doesn't define you, that doesn't destroy the image of God within you. What it makes you is human. 
What it makes you is imperfect. What it makes you is someone in need of a savior. And that is really the hope of the gospel. I was thinking about this. I wouldn't necessarily recommend the show to everybody, but there's a show, True Detective. I was reading a book and they were quoting this show. And in True Detective, this Matthew McConaughey's character, Rust, is talking about what we're talking about. He's reflecting on a case. He says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. See, to me, I, I, I think about that and I'm like, it makes sense. It makes sense, this lie that Adam and Eve believe and how that has rippled into the rest of our lives. And how many of us, if we just got free from the lie, free from the deception, that we actually have our own best interests at heart and that we know better than God how free we could be. How, how, would, our, how would the people leading our world look different? How, how would our church look different? How would your family, how would your marriage, how would your school look different? If we just took some of these things to heart. I was talking with our past uh, lead pastor, Brian, who spoke down here before, and he said something that was really, it just stopped me. He said, underneath every sin we engage is a lie we've believed. Underneath every single addiction, every single broken pattern, there's some lie, there's some deception under there. And that by confessing, we're freeing ourselves, not only from not just making ourselves feel bad with someone else, we're actually freeing and getting more in touch with reality. And maybe for you, it's getting someone in your life like a Jason who you can do that with. Maybe it's getting counseling. Maybe it's just being honest uh, in your marriage again. Maybe it's speaking up. Maybe I don't know what it is. Maybe it's scripture. Maybe it's prayer. But, but here's what I know. When we do these things, when we actually let God in to this very uncomfortable conversation, what ends up happening is we do get healed and we do get free. So I wanna pray for us together. I wanna pray and then we're gonna worship and sing. And uh, I just know like, as, as we're about to pray here, there may be somebody in the room. You may be sitting there and you're like, you know what? I have never done, John, what you said you did 12 years ago. I've never surrendered my life to Jesus. I, I've never considered giving him kingship and lordship over my life. Maybe today you do that. Maybe today is that day. Maybe today you say, I'm just gonna stop running my own life. I'm gonna let Jesus guide the person who's created and loved me and is forming and let him lead. And if, uh, as you walked in, you probably saw some of these light bulbs behind you. Uh, some of these light bulbs are indicating from the last couple of weeks of our church, people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus and said, I'm gonna do that. And it's just an example. We started that at Christmas. We're gonna keep that going the next couple months. And so we're celebrating those stories, but maybe that's your story today. But the second is maybe you, you need to get a rhythm in some way in your life of, of confession. And we wanna create a little bit of space. We're gonna sing, we're gonna worship. We're gonna give us some time to reflect. I wanna give you just 30 seconds, right, right where you are, to maybe honestly, for maybe the first time, just confess some things on your heart. You don't have to do that out loud. You don't have to come up and say it to somebody necessarily. Maybe that's a step for later today or this week, but just start with you and God. Say, God, here, here's some things in my life that are broken. I need you to heal. Here are some places I'm not proud of, I'm ashamed. I haven't even felt like I could say these to you. And just to, to begin to open it, friends, that is where freedom happens. That is where real life happens. It's when we're able to do that. And, and there's no better person 
than the father who loves you and gave himself up for you. And so we're gonna sing here in a moment. I just wanna create that space and I'll close us out in prayer. So let's do that together. So Jesus, we just come before you. We thank you that you you love us. You have created us. You are for us. You laid your life down to set us free and to bring us back to the way that we were always intended to be. And so we just confess, we even lament, God, just the things that we let go in our life that are ruining us. They're ruining our marriage. They are ruining our friendships. They're ruining our relationship with roommates or siblings. And we just ask God that your healing touch, your, your freedom will just invade our hearts right now as we've given up things to you, as we have laid down things to you. We thank you for the hope that the gospel brings. We thank you that, that your promise to heal and restore and bring us back is, is always there, it's always available. And that in Christ, that we have nothing to fear, nothing to, to hide from. We can bring things to you, knowing that you care, and that you see. And so God, it's in that spirit, we ask that you'd fill us with your grace to take the next step, to, to enable us to have the courage and boldness to, to get honest, to get back in touch, frankly, with reality. And we ask that you'd help us to live out uh, the truth. You'd help us to live out your way instead of the lies that we've believed or been offered or can so easily slip into without even knowing. We surrender all that to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.